Well, if you have your Bibles, we are in Exodus chapter 20. So if you haven't, please make your way there as we continue our look at the Ten Commandments. And we established last time that uh, next to John 3.16, this is probably the most recognizable portion of Scripture. You know, John 3.16 would have to be the most recognized verse in the Bible, but coming in a close second would have to be the Ten Commandments. And yet, we realize that most cannot articulate all Ten Commandments in order. Uh, They know they're important, and they know that they were foundational to what God wanted to do, but they don't know them specifically. They don't know them individually, and they certainly don't have a clear understanding of what God meant by them. And so for the last several months, we have been looking at the book of Exodus, with our goal arriving at this point, looking at the Ten Commandments themselves. But before we could really dive into and truly appreciate what God was doing here within the Ten Commandments, we needed to begin at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And God encouraged us to do so here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. As a result... God required us to revisit the first 19 chapters. We did that. We looked at them. And now we are here at this point where we are now looking and addressing the Ten Commandments. In chapter 19, God made it clear that He desired Israel to be a special treasure, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And He began that by taking them out of Egypt bringing them to the side of Mount Sinai as they gather around. God then came upon the mountain and spoke verbally these Ten Commandments. It was in these commandments that their separation from the world would be complete and they would be able to interact with God and one another the way God prescribed that they should. However, though, they never perfectly fulfilled it. They could never keep all of the Ten Commandments. They failed in their human frailty. They could never obtain any kind of eternal life by keeping the Ten Commandments. And last week, we made it clear that no one is saved by keeping the Ten Commandments because no one can keep the Ten Commandments. And so there was one who kept them perfectly who was perfect from the moment he entered into this world to the moment he ascended back to the Father. And before that and after that, he was in a state of perfection. And now if we would believe upon him by faith and trust him for our salvation, we can be found perfect in him before God the Father. And I'm speaking of Jesus Christ. See, as God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, God has brought you and I out of the world to be His special people, a kingdom of priests. He wants you and I to interact with Him in the prescribed manner that He has set forth in the Word. And He wants us to interact with one another in the prescribed manner that He has set forth in the Word. And this morning, we will discover that there's a transition between the fourth and the fifth commandment. 
The first four commandments have to deal with our relationship with God. And specifically for the people. Now, for the people of Israel, this was what they had at the moment. We have Jesus, and it's in and through Jesus that we approach God and can only approach God. But let's read the first four to remind ourselves of what God desired of them. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, uh, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is what God prescribed for them in in their interaction with him. And it lays a principle for you and I that is echoed in the New Testament. That before we can have right relationships with others, we must first have a right relationship with God. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm only going to have right relationships with those around me if I first truly have a right relationship with God. If I try to have right relationships with others outside of that right relationship with God, I'm going to fail miserably. I'm going to stumble often. And as a result, I'll never enjoy the relationships as God would have me to enjoy them. So when I'm right with God, then I can be right with others. I cannot be the husband that God has called me to be if I was not first the Christian that God has called me to be. I cannot be the father to my daughter if I am not first the Christian that God has called me to be. I'm not going to interact with them properly. And so I must allow God to do that work within me, therefore that he may do the work through me and that I may have right relationships with those around me. The world today gives us another set of advice. They tell us that we must have a right relationship with ourselves before I can have a right relationship with others. I must have the right level of self-esteem. I must love myself to a certain degree. But if we really truly think about that statement, it is inconsistent with helping me develop and maintain relationships with other people. Because other relationships outside of myself require sacrifice. It requires a give and take. And if it's all about me, I'm going to have a very difficult times in those other relationships. And now we have discovered that even the secular world is now saying that the reasons that so many relationships are in such tension is because of the selfishness of the individuals. I'm glad they finally got it. But now that we have looked what God would have us 
to recognize for our relationship between him and us. And then we looked in the New Testament last time to show how these things play out. That as believers in Jesus Christ, the New Testament tells us how these things play out in our life. Think of it this way. The giving of the Ten Commandments was like a meteor hitting the earth with a dramatic impact. And as the meteor hit, the, the ring began to uh, create, and this, this ring this, uh, that moved across the face of the earth after the impact of the giving of the Ten Commandments is echoed throughout history, and it is echoed throughout the New Testament. It's like throwing a rock in the water and watching the rings disperse. And after God gave these things, and then Christ came and perfected these things, then the echo continues, and we see how they play out in the Christian life today. So we're going to be looking at the Old Testament impact and the New Testament application, and how God would have us to uh, view these things in the light of the New Testament. But the very first thing that God deals with in uh, concerning relationships within our lives is the relationship between parents and children. And he doesn't address the parents, he addresses the children. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Before he addresses anything else, the basic fundamental of the family is addressed, the relationship between children and their parents, and he directs it towards the children. Now, we're all children of parents, are we not? So this is a continuous thing. All of us have mothers and fathers. Now, sometimes, you know, uh, we don't like to claim that fact. I remember coming home, and my father was outside cutting the grass, and he had a brown shirt on, he had plaid shorts, he had black socks and white shoes. And my father would always kind of rib me when I would do something silly. Now, let me be more specific, something stupid. As many as you all know, I was adopted. And my dad said, oh, I can tell you were adopted because you can't be for me after I did something silly. So I was so thankful that when I walked in and I saw him cutting the grass like that, I could say, thank God I was adopted. And hopefully I have better fashion sense than him. But we all have parents. And God would have us honor our mother and our father. Now, I don't have to tell you that there are very few things in life that bring us more pleasure or more pain than our family. When things are going great, it's wonderful. When things aren't going so great, it can be the toughest experience here on this earth. I also don't have to make much of a case to show you and to demonstrate that the relationships between parents and children today are so strained. There is such great tension. There are such great difficulties. There seems to be insurmountable obstacles that keep us from having a healthy relationship with our children in this culture. What has happened to the family here in this great nation? If you need any kind of visual representation or illustration to show you how much we have digressed and how much we have declined here in the nation of America concerning the American family, 
Let's just consider for a moment uh, some of the television shows that we watched maybe when we were younger and the television shows that we have on today that give us a depiction of the family life. Growing up, my idea of family was the Brady Bunch. And even that got risky at some times when they had that episode that they actually had to have a little disclaimer because Greg was going to use a very nasty word at that time towards Bobby, and that was that he was a stinker. Scandalous. Scandalous. I remember a show that my parents used to have us watch called The Waltons. Some of you might remember that. I was traumatized by the Waltons. I'm still not over it. And let me tell you why. I asked my mom and dad for a lunchbox. I was going into sixth grade. I needed a new lunchbox. And I told her very specifically I wanted a Star Wars lunchbox. Mom, I want a Star Wars lunchbox. I knew that that lunchbox would give me a social status within the school that would be unparalleled. I would finally be popular. So I sent them off on their way, commissioned them, and they returned, and I waited with great anticipation in the picture window of our home, and they walked up, and I saw the bags, and I could tell that there was a lunchbox in the bag, and I just thought, thank God I'm going to have that Star Wars lunchbox. I'm going to be able to make an entrance into sixth grade like no other. And then she brought it in. She put it on the kitchen table. She opened the bag. She took out the lunchbox. And to my amazement and also to my great horror, it was not a Star Wars lunchbox. They didn't have one, so she got me one that she felt I would like, and it was that of the Waltons. (laughs) And I opened it up, and on the thermos was a huge picture of John Boy that I still see at night tonight. (laughs) Traumatized by such things. But today, our family, I mean, and then in the 80s, we had the Cosbys. Remember the Cosbys? And that depicted a family life of normalcy. But today, we have the Simpsons. And the representation of Christianity in the Simpsons is the goofball, Ned Flanders. Isn't that interesting? Then we have family guy, and we have the modern day family, which could mean man and man, woman and woman, etc. The modern day family. It's like, what has happened to the nuclear family of the United States of America? Well, you may ask yourself, is the family unit really important to our nation? You know, one said it this way, a family can exist without a nation, but a nation cannot exist without the family. The family is key. It's what God designed. It is how God uh, orchestrated and architected the way that people should interact. And it was in the family that we were to represent God. And now that we've moved away from that in such great lengths, we have all kinds of difficulties now in our society. But God said for us as children of parents that we were to honor our parents. And that simply means to respect them, to esteem them, to honor them. As one wrote about that definition of honor, he said this, to honor one's parents included to prize them, to care for them, and to show respect or reverence to them. The command is given to children, but not only while they are children... But as adults also, they are to respect their parents in such a way. 
Now, this doctrine is not popular in the modern world where youth is worshipped and old age is uh, dreaded and despised. You know, Jesus made this very clear in the New Testament when he was challenged by the religious leaders concerning the washing of hands. And they were all uptight because uh, his... uh, disciples didn't do the things the way they prescribed and they didn't wash their hands in a certain manner. So they came to Jesus in Matthew 15, 1 through 9. I'll read it for you. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Sounds like my parents right there. Did you wash your hands? Sure I did. Then how come they're black? Then he answered and said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he has not honored his father. So for the sake of your traditions, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, he says. Well did the Isaiah the prophet say of you when he said, This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines and the commandments of men. Here's what was happening. In that culture, as the children aged and got older, they were to establish themselves and they were to put wealth on the side to honor their mother and father in their older years. But they would say, instead of doing that, they would take those resources and they would make this false claim that they are dedicating them onto God when in actuality they were still in that individual's possession. And therefore, this, uh, this oath that they made or this dedication of those things then would relinquish in their mind their responsibility to take care of their parents. And Jesus says, you're hypocrites. Don't come to me about your traditions when your traditions break the commands of God. And within this, there is a promise of longevity in the land in which God was about to give them. Now, how does that play out? you see an unfolding uh, element happen that when this relationship isn't where it is meant to be, the relationship between them and God isn't where it is meant to be. When the children rebelled against their parents and that rebellion looked as if they did not continue in the wisdom of their parents. For example, you see that as parents worship God and they reverence God, the children would stand from a distance and they would not engage in such things and they would walk away from things and they would not have a passion or a heart for God. And as a result, their hearts were turned to pagan gods. And as a result, that worship of pagan gods led to being expelled from their nation in judgment. Today we see the exact same thing happening. We see the exact same thing happening. Where is our nation going to be in the next 20 years? That's a scary thought, especially if you're here today with young children. I never thought that this nation would change as much as it has changed in the last 20 years. I can't even fathom where it will be in the next 20 years. But understand that this breakdown of the family is indication that there's a breakdown between man and God. And isn't it interesting that the farther we push God away in this society, 
The farther that we uh, expel him from every aspect of life and don't want to consider him anymore, the more problems we have. And the family itself starts to dissipate. And that sense of normalcy that is sought by so much is unattainable because they're not willing to do what God would have them to do. So God knew as the children went, so went the nation. A very interesting thing to consider. It is interesting because one commentator wrote this. He says, the states, This states a general principle that obedience fosters self-discipline, which in turn brings stability and longevity in one's life. Stated conversely, uh, this is improbable that an undisciplined person will have a long life, meaning it's not possible. Where are things going? This was so important to God that individuals, children, honor their mother and father that it was a capital offense. It was a capital crime. Listen to what Exodus 21.17 says. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. For anyone who curses, Leviticus 29, his father and mother shall surely be put to death. And he has cursed his father and mother, his blood is upon him. Even the writer of Proverbs says, if one curses his father and mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. In the New Testament, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 1-3, Children, obey your parents as it is right to do so. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in this land. But Paul also warned us that as the days grow closer to the return of Jesus Christ, in Second Timothy 3, 1-5, he made it clear that one of the distinguishing characteristics of a society apart from God was going to be disobedient children. How are we doing today? Between the relationship of parents and children. It's a very difficult relationship. And part of the problem is the fact that we have elevated this, this idea of youth to a place where it is worshipped by many. And in the elevation of youth... There is the devaluing of those who are older, which is tragic. It is a shame. The wisdom that we should be gaining from this generation, we are simply dismissing, thinking that we, can, we know best. But why does this surprise anyone? If we continuously perpetuate evolution, aren't we talking about survival of the fittest? That's not the way God sees it. You know... There are some who pursue youth to a, just an outrageous degree. Recently, Joan Rivers died. And someone made the comment that she couldn't be buried because of all the plastic surgery she needed to be recycled. Because she was pursuing youth to such a degree that she couldn't take to heart and to grip her old age. She didn't want to be unfit for that in which she loved to do, and that was to act. The relationship between children and parents today is a very difficult one. There is very little respect shown between children towards their parents any longer. The Bible wanted the children to be successful, and in that success, honor their mother and father preparing to take care of mother and father when they could no longer take care for themselves. 
And it was a beautiful picture of self-sacrifice. And it was a beautiful picture of the family dynamic. And how often do we remember watching old films or old movies or reading books about the yesteryears and finding that grandma and grandpa lived in the home with the family and were there for the children all the time. And they could impart wisdom, they could impart knowledge, etc., And they could help, and they could be part of the family. And today we want nothing to do with that scenario. We want to get rid of them. We just want to put them out of sight, out of mind. We don't want to take care of them any longer because we don't want them to be a burden upon our life and not fulfilling the things that we want to do. They're just going to hold me back. What a tragedy it is. Or the children that are growing up with the concept that their parents are uh, mandated to take care of them forever. That they're entitled. That they have no ambition to go out and to establish their own lives. I feel that's incredibly disrespectful to mom and dad. They have no regard for the sacrifices that their mom and dad made for them. And now they are simply feeling that they are entitled to such things And that they should be taken care of even though they are well into years where they should be taking care of themselves. It's a tragedy what is happening. Many parents are lost when it comes to the discipline of their children. They don't know how to effectively discipline children anymore. And children then therefore take advantage of the lack of correction and discipline that mom and dads don't know how to do any longer. But one of the things that I hear the most is that my parents don't deserve that honor. I want to just stop you there for a moment. Maybe you feel that way. You know, Pastor, I don't feel like I should honor them. They don't deserve it. You don't know what difficulties they brought me through. No, I don't know what difficulties you went through, but I know what difficulties I went through. I told you I was adopted. I was adopted into a family that was just taken by alcohol. And my mother was a violent alcoholic my entire time. I was told by my parents that it was my adoption that caused my mother to drink. That she couldn't handle being a parent. That I was too much for her to bear. I was told that at a very young age. I was told that by my mother as she would yell at me constantly as a small child that I was keeping her from all that she wanted to do when it was the alcohol in actuality that was keeping her from what she wanted to do. My mother had nothing but disdain for me as I was growing up. And she demonstrated in that, that in many different ways. And I grew as a young child, and the anger was permeating my heart in every degree. I didn't think anyone cared. I I thought that if this is the relationship that I have with my mother and father, and this is what I've created. Now, my father never felt that way. It was always my mother. And my mother reminded me of that constantly, and the anger grew, and it grew, and it grew until when I was in high school, it just exploded. I was so angry all the time. And this angry 16-year-old kid found himself on his girlfriend's uh, parents' porch. And I was angry. And her father overheard what I had said, came out and said, Son, I'm going to tell you one thing. You better listen to what I'm about to tell you. You need Jesus Christ. 
He's the only one that can save you from that anger, from that pain, and from the sin in your life. And I cried out to God that night, and my life was never the same again. But after becoming a Christian, I was still wrestling with this relationship with my mom. Because I read verses like this. I read about forgiveness and not being forgiven by God unless I would first forgive. And I said, God, I can't do it. They don't deserve this honor. They don't deserve this. And I was getting to a point where I was really wrestling with it. And right before I was to be married to Dina, my dad, after the rehearsal dinner, pulled me aside into the den and we had a long conversation and I discovered and he admitted that they had lied to me. It wasn't I who caused the drinking for she had been drinking 10 years before I was adopted. My dad thought it was going to help. And I was angry even further. And I'm in the Lord. I'm getting married. I didn't want to take that anger into my marriage. And so the Lord and I began to bang away at it, and I began to pray, and He began to show me the grace of God and how much He had forgiven me. And eventually I said, Lord, I can't do it, and He gave me the grace to forgive. And because He gave me that grace to forgive, I was able to go back and be a witness for Jesus Christ to my parents. Even though I didn't, many would say they didn't deserve it, you know what, I don't deserve salvation. So I went back and I asked God, I prayed. 28 years I prayed and I prayed and prayed and two months ago my mom came to Saving Faith in Jesus Christ. I understand when you say they don't deserve it, but God says do it. And if it's forgiveness is the issue, then forgive them. Forgive them knowing that what Christ has forgiven you all of your sins, forgive them, and then honor them, respect them, and be a light unto them that they may have eternal life in Jesus Christ. The sixth commandment is found in verse 13. You shall not murder. God places an incredible value on human life where he says in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The word for murder there in the Hebrew is a word that encompasses premeditation, that it's willful murder, that it has been considered prior to actually unfolding. And the word resha. It means that this is it. You've purposed to kill somebody individually and personally. And this is the issue. We as believers should not murder anyone. You're probably saying, thanks, I knew that already. But understand that Jesus took this one step farther. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he said that even if you're angry with someone, that was me, I was angry, and I didn't realize that that anger was in waiting a judgment. That anger that I had was waiting a judgment. Even after being a believer, I still was mad at my parents for what they had subjected me to until God pulled me up from the big picture. I was adopted from a place called the Cradle in Evanston, Illinois. Earlier, sometime a year or two earlier, Bob Hope adopted children from that same place. I missed it by that much. I could have been Eric Hope doing USO shows all over the world. But you have this tendency to say, look, they got that, I got this. Lord, what are you doing? 
I'm a child of God now. I've been adopted twice. And I'll tell you right here this morning that whatever uh, the world has taken, God has replaced tenfold. It's incredible what God has done. But we shall not murder, and even that anger can be murder in our hearts. As Jesus said that it is still yet, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. We shall not murder. But what about capital punishment? Does this forbid it? And the answer is no. God set capital punishment in Genesis 9.6. He made it clear that he values life to such a high degree that capital punishment is not in play here. We cannot take the law into our own hands. We cannot murder um, just to murder, though we can defend ourselves, I believe. The Bible clearly states that we can defend ourselves. But we shall not murder. Today in the United States of America, there is an overwhelming majority against capital punishment. But what is ironic to me is that almost in the exact same fashion, that same percentile is favoring abortion. That's ironic to me. That we would spare the guilty and slaughter the innocent. It doesn't make sense to me. So I asked them, is that really what you are saying? And that is the conclusion they have come to. It's okay to kill children in the womb, but it's not okay to punish a criminal who has taken the life of others. Just the opposite of what God has said. Now we need to talk about violence in our nation today because as we move farther away from God, violence will raise its ugly head amongst our society. And it is overwhelming what is taking place. The University of Michigan healthcare system uh, didn't make things any easier on the world when they came out with a study concerning violence and how it is how it is groomed and how people are prepared to act violent acts. And one of the areas that they looked at was the number one method of communication within the United States of America. Can anybody tell me what that is? Television. So you haven't had your coffee yet. Check this out. This just came out. This is the University of Michigan. This isn't some Christian organization. The average American child will see 200,000 violent acts and 16,000 murders on TV by the age of 18. Two-thirds of all programming contains violence. Programs designed for children more often contain violence than those programs designed for adults. Now listen to these next two. That on TV, most violent acts go unpunished on TV and are often accompanied by humor. The consequences of human suffering and loss are rarely depicted in these shows. Many shows go on to glamorize violence. TV often promotes violence acts as fun and effective ways of getting what you want without consequences. This is the world saying this now. Listen to those things. So does it surprise you that in 2013, in the city of Chicago, 2,185 acts of shooting violence took place in one year? Astronomical. The police today are uh, celebrating because this year, up until today, we are down to 1,400. 
I feel so much better. It's half. But do you realize that nearly 2 million people a year become the uh, violent criminals? 2 million people a year become violent criminal and criminal victims. But let's talk about the killing of innocent children in the womb of all places. As we kill children in the name of convenience, and maybe we don't talk about this enough here at this church, but if you don't know, I'm as pro-life as they get. And I'm going to explain why I am this morning. Since Roe versus Wade, 50 million babies have been murdered here in the United States of America. Since Roe versus Wade, that is of the 1960s, abortion has become a $5 million industry a year here in the United States of America. Worldwide, it has become a $10 billion industry. But when it comes to this debate over the life of a child, obviously there are some that oppose any kind of sanction against abortion. And they guise it with, but it's choice. The woman should have a choice. Now, they're only concerned if it's a woman's choice who is the woman who's carrying the baby. They don't care if it's a woman with inside the woman who is the baby. It is not a matter of choice. We have every means of contraceptives here in the United States of America. This is often done out of convenience. But many then will say, okay, well, what about when the life of the mother is in danger? This is one I hear all the time as a pastor. Now, I ask them this question. They don't like it, but I ask them it anyways because I want them to think a little bit. I would never picture a scenario where a mother and her child are walking across the street and there's an oncoming car that is out of control and to save the mother's life, she pushes the child in front of the car. Do you think that would occur? That mother would do anything that she possibly could to save the child. But Christians are faced with this decision too. Do you realize that? There's a story I just recently read of two missionaries who were in the Philippines in the 1980s. And she was pregnant with her fifth child. And she came down with ambiotic dysentery, which was the number one cause of death of pregnant mothers there in the uh, Philippines. And the doctor came to her and said, listen, we need to abort the baby immediately that we may treat the dysentery because the medicines that we are about to give you for the dysentery treatment are going to be harmful to the fetus. You need to abort now to save yourself. This wasn't her first child. It was her fifth. And she chose chose to trust God. And she said, you know what? I'm going to trust God that he is going to see my life and the child's life through. But if you have to save one, save the child. Their names were Bob and Pam, two missionaries in the Philippines. Now you may know their son. His name is Tim Tebow. He was the baby that was born that moment. She had the choice, but she chose to save his life. Okay, but then if you, even if you have an answer for that one, Pastor, what about the young lady who gets raped? Well, we've been confronted with that also. My wife was approached by a young lady three months before her wedding. She had saved herself for marriage, this young lady. And as she was coming home one evening from work, she was taken into the back of a van and raped three months before 
her wedding. She was devastated. It's a Christian gal. She was a virgin, and she was raped, and then she found out she was pregnant. And we prayed with her. Her church elders prayed with her. We encouraged her. We talked to her fiancé, and they chose to have the baby. And then he adopted the baby as his own. Last year, that child was in my wife's preschool class. And when my wife asked the class if they wanted to believe in Jesus for their salvation, hers was the first hand that went up. These are horrific scenarios, and we should never trivialize them. But God has a way of doing things beyond what we ever thought was capable. Dina said when she saw that young girl's hand go up, she could do nothing but cry. And recently, my daughter babysat her. It was just awesome. Just awesome to see. And today now, we are once again debating, should we be able to assist others in their assisted suicides? Now, how long will this become? Uh, how long will it be before it's not only assisting those who have terminal illnesses, who don't want to go through the pain of those diseases, but it goes on to you know, uh, aborting children, which is happening now, that we don't like their physical features, eugenics, which was a problem earlier in the history of the United States of America and around the world, and Hitler perpetuated through the Holocaust. How long is it before that we, that we deem certain individuals useless in society and a burden to society and we simply just execute them? And the argument that often comes back is that there needs to be dignity in death. And when I was confronted with that, I said this, there is no dignity in death if that death leads to hell. Don't tell me about dignity. There's no dignity there whatsoever. Let us understand that life is precious to God. Thou shall not murder. I have made man in my image, he says. Life is precious. And life begins at conception to birth, to death. And as God values that life, so shall we. And lastly, of the seventh commandment, and closing up, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, nowhere in the Bible is adultery considered favorable. Nowhere in the Bible is adultery considered a good thing. It is always considered a negative thing. Once again, like the first two, Those who commit adultery were absolutely able to be held accountable and even put to death for doing so. If you read the seriousness of adultery throughout the Bible, you cannot help but understand why God opposes it such. It destroys everything within the relationship between a husband and a wife. Maybe you here today know of a couple who has experienced adultery. And the devastation, the trust that was broken at that moment, it's horrid. God says you shall not commit adultery. When David committed adultery, he wrote Psalm 51, explaining how he felt inside. He says, I'm dry, I'm empty. Lord, forgive me for my iniquity. Read it for yourself, the first 12 verses. 
As David's crying out after his fall with Bathsheba, he's, he said, Lord, forgive me for what I've done. Restore me. Create in me a new heart, Lord. Forgive me because that sexual sin was so overwhelming to him and the adultery that he had committed. Jesus went on to say in the New Testament that anyone who divorces for a reason outside of sexual immorality and remarries commits adultery. He then goes on to say in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, if you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but then he deepens it. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members that your whole body might not go to hell. Now, is he actually telling you to do that? No, he's saying go to that length. Deal with it. Sexual sin is a problem. Now, we live in a society that I don't have to tell you is so sexually charged, we can't get away from it. Everywhere you go, everything you see, everything you hear on billboards, radio, TV, internet, is all about sex. Last year, Google made an announcement that in the course of one day, 68 million searches are conducted for pornographic sites here in the United States of America. 68 million in one day here in America alone to look for pornographic sites. Today's individuals are still unhappy with their personal sex life that we today have created a $3 billion a year business in medication just to simply help you to have sex into your latter years. We are so sexually charged in every way possible that no one has a right understanding or a right bearing where it comes to sex. We have told married couples that if the sex isn't good, man, you simply just go out and find somebody else, and that's where adultery starts to fall into place. The number of men who are uh, shackled to their computers or handheld devices looking at pornography each night behind closed doors, it's overwhelming. We need to purge ourselves of these things. I will tell you this, that if your computer causes you to sin, throw it out. Get rid of it. Find a, uh, a software that will block those things so you can't get at them and be accountable for yourself. But today, young people think that love is synonymous with sex. That there is no difference. That that's what love is. And God says it's so much more than that. Today, we've super, we've super hypered, <laughs> charged sex to the point where young people today if they have difficulties with the opposite sex, they just then fall into the same sex. But it's all about sex. God says you shall not commit adultery. We need to look at the biblical ethics for sex and how God has created it to be a wonderful thing between husband and wife, man and woman, leaving mother and father, cleaving to one another in a new family, joining themselves to be one. And sex for the Christian is not just for procreation, it's also for pleasure but it's meant to be done the way God has orchestrated it to do. And as a result of this elevation in our nation, everything is so skewed, we can't even look at it correctly any longer. But I like what Spurgeon says, and we'll close with this. Thanks for your time this morning. When he wrote about thou shalt not commit adultery, he noticed that within all of the commandments, something more. 
This means more than just the mere act, he says. It refers to fornication and uncleanness of any shape in act, word, or thought. So with every commandment that God has given us, the bare letter is nothing compared to the whole uh, stupendous meaning, uh, severe strictness of the rule. The commands are like stars. When we see them with the naked eye, they appear to be brilliant points. But if we could draw near to them, we would see them to be infinite worlds. These things are huge, and the ramifications of them is enormous. But think that in the wake of the United States of America pushing its way away from God, think just these three. How is the relationship between parents and children any longer demonstrated here in the United States of America? What about violence acts? You shall not commit murder. How are we doing there? You shall not commit adultery. How are we doing there? as we continue to push away from God and saying, we don't need you and suppress the knowledge of God and unrighteousness. Now I want to tell you this morning that if you have fallen into these things, repent of them. And God through Christ will give you the grace to overcome them. I shared with you a little bit of my story, and I know you have a story also, of how these things affect you, and maybe they're a little different. But the same grace that was offered to me is offered to you this morning to repent of these things and to get right with God. Because until you get right with God, you won't be right with others. So repent and allow God's grace, mercy, love, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, cleanse you of all unrighteousness.